Kids who are in this room, have you ever been, have you ever been outside on a winter day, cold, frigid, just so cold, your fingers are getting all, you know, burnt, they feel burny, you know, they're just really, really not feeling good. And then you're you, it's so cold, you can't feel your nose or you can't feel your toes. And, and you're just, you're enjoying yourself so much, but then after a while, you've thrown so many snowballs and your fingers are so cold and you've built so many forts that you're tired and, and you start feeling miserable, achy, that burn sensation. You can't feel your nose, all, all of that. But then you come inside to a warm house and maybe your house has a fireplace and, and your mom and dad have started a fire and that fire is glowing hot and it's so warm and they have a big blanket, big afghan, they pull around you and you come and you sit down at the fireplace and you slowly begin to warm up and then your mom, your mom brings you a hot chocolate, just so warm on your hands and so creamy, so chocolatey and you're drinking it and you start slowly just getting warmer and warmer and warmer till you're so content and so happy. No longer do you remember that you didn't feel your nose about half an hour ago. You're just so content and it feels awesome. Well, today we come to a story about a couple of people that knew Jesus who find themselves cold. Not cold from winter, but cold hearts, sad hearts, miserable at the beginning of our text, but very warm and joyful and excited at the end. And so make sure you listen to find out what it is that makes these two disciples of Jesus so miserable, and then what makes them so warm and happy at the end. And try to find yourself in this story as well. Now in our text today, we have the specific eyewitness account of two disciples Two disciples, one we know to be a man named Cleopas, and the other one we don't know. Maybe a man, maybe a woman, maybe his wife. We don't know who the other person is, but they are disciples. They are disciples who are walking away from Jerusalem after the death of Jesus a couple of days on. Seems to be Sunday afternoon or morning, probably afternoon at the time. And they're walking away dejected. And yet after coming into contact and having been given eyes to see the risen Christ throughout the entirety of the scriptures and then seeing him right before their very eyes being absolutely and radically changed, having their hearts burn within them. Now burn is a good thing. Burning, warm, like that fireplace. They come alive. These two eyewitnesses help us to see this morning in this text that Jesus is not just categorically alive, he is absolutely alive and he is changing lives as we've seen this morning so clearly. These two disciples give us a glimpse into our often darkened eyes of failure, and failure specifically in believing and doubting. And yet when we're given eyes to see the Christ of the Scriptures and given the gift of faith, having our eyes opened to the glories of Christ in this book, a work that the Spirit does through this book of books by our hearts also, burn within us. That is what's meant to happen. Friends, this passage tells us of a story that is just absolutely enormous need that we have to see Jesus rightly in the Word of God. 
And if we do not see Jesus there and understand him there and his commandments there from the entirety of the word of God, we won't only be blind and cold and, and miserable amid the various sorrows of unmet expectations in our life, but we will be entirely lost and without hope for eternity. Simply just how serious this is. And just as these two disciples needed to experience real life in seeing and believing, really knowing Christ, really knowing Him, so do we also, don't we, need to be given eyes to see Christ clearly in God's Word, have our own hearts burn within us that we might live in the joy and the power of the resurrection and not Jesus as just some sort of category of thing that we think is true. The point I want to consider from the text today is this. Your heart will warm in the nearness of God by believing what the Bible tells you about Jesus. Your heart will warm in the nearness of God by believing what the Bible tells you about Jesus. So a question right off the bat, do you find your heart towards God cold or warm? Fire or ice? lifeless or filled with vigor? Do you feel that God is far away from you? Or do you feel, not? He's near. He's with me. The nearness of God and believing in the promises of God in this book, the Bible, seeing Jesus, being with Jesus, knowing Jesus will work, will work on our hearts over time, little by little by little, over time, like sitting by a blazing fiery fireplace where our toes begin to get warm and our arms start to get warm and our nose starts to get, we start to get warmer and warmer and warmer. And it comes in knowing and believing what the Bible says about Jesus. Simply two observations from this text that I want to consider. The first one is the overwhelming sorrows of life come from our failure to believe the word of God. Second, the ardent fervor of spiritual life comes from knowing the word of God. So let's jump right to the first observation this morning. The overwhelming sorrows of life come from our failure to believe the Word of God. These two disciples departing Jerusalem just a few days after Jesus was killed, even after they had heard the report of the women who were given the privilege of first seeing the empty tomb and being told by angels that Jesus was alive, uh, these guys, these, these, these two disciples heard this. They were walking towards a village named Emmaus just a few hours away from Jerusalem by foot. These, these two disciples disciples were sad. They were, they, they were miserable. They were sad and lonely. They were, they were hopeless. Their, the hope had been diminished. They were filled not simply with doubt, but absolute confusion and unbelief. Now, now, have you ever felt absolutely confused? Well, why is this happening to me? Yeah, 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 we felt that. These guys were like this. Their, their, their hopes had been dashed. All their dreams crumbling before their eyes. Actually, not crumbling, crumbled before their eyes. And they were walking away from Jerusalem, upset, sad. What, what happened? All they could see in this moment, at uh, this point of time, was the death of the one they had hoped in. All they saw were their circumstances. All they saw were all the negative things that had happened to them. And they, all they could see was the rotten and depressing circumstances 
on account of their failure to believe certain things. And their grief and their confusion just rose to the top. First thing they failed to believe in was who Jesus really was. The disciples are talking along the road to Emmaus, and Jesus comes up alongside them and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And why are you so sad? And they answer this way in verse 19. Well, talking about things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. They, they understood some of who Jesus is. And most people do understand some of who Jesus is. That he's a mighty prophet, that he's a powerful in word and deed, and certainly he is all of that. Many, many of the crowd that shouted crucify him believed him to be a mighty prophet at one point. They believed that he was a man that taught with authority and all of those things. The, the miracles were awesome. They, they focused on the power of his works, and though they had declared he was powerful in his words, they evidently did not believe the words that he spoke. Things like, after the third day, I will rise again. Nah, can't be. So out of left field is that, that it just was not on their minds. They had spent hours and days, weeks and months with Jesus, and they were still blinded by some understanding of who Jesus is, even though they've witnessed Jesus repeatedly declaring and proving that he is actually the Son of God, the Savior, the Christ, the Son of David. It's the very reason that the religious leaders crucified him for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. They missed it. And they thought he was a prophet that had powerful words and powerful deeds. But he was dead, as far as they were concerned. This is what they were telling the risen Jesus, you know. In order for their eyes to be opened, amid all of their grief and lostness and sorrow, they, along with every single one of us in this room, have to understand, first and foremost, that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is who this book says he is. That Jesus is the Son of God. Nothing less than the Son of God. Um, not just a mighty prophet. Although he certainly was that, but he wasn't just that. Uh, most people would say Jesus was a good teacher, right? Most people would say that Jesus was a mighty prophet. Even many religions out there that are not believing that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that Jesus is a mighty prophet. Jesus was a mighty prophet. He was a, he's a dead mighty prophet. When, when one fails to believe who Jesus says he is and reveal himself to be as the Son of God and the only way of salvation for all those who believe in which, in which and through those... in which there is through him alone salvation, and there is salvation found in no one else. When the sorrows, if somebody forgets that, if somebody doesn't know that, if somebody doesn't get that, if somebody has a category for it, but it's not in their heart, if they kind of have an idea, theological understanding that Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, 
Well, the sorrows and the temporal joys of this life, there's only confusion. There's only grief to be had. There's only a sense of general meaninglessness. There's always this pursuit and search for something of meaning. But the first thing that has to happen is they must know who Jesus really is. But they failed to do that. And so they were upset and they were sorrowful. And perhaps this morning you're upset and sorrowful. And it may be that you've forgotten that Jesus is the Son of God. Don't let that go out out into the field of forgetfulness. Perhaps you've forgotten that Jesus is precisely who he says he is, and he is trustworthy. Well, not only did they fail to believe that, but they failed to believe that the death of Jesus was the plan of God. These disciples in verse 20 went on to tell Jesus what had happened just a couple of days prior because, you know, Jesus didn't know what had just happened, but they didn't know it was Jesus, right? So they're telling him, like, how do you even, how, how could you be in Jerusalem, Mr. Traveler person? How could you be in Jerusalem and not know what happened? Everybody knows what happened. But to these disciples, it seemed clear, no matter the numerous times Jesus had told them otherwise, that Jesus had been crucified solely out of the injustice of the chief priests and rulers. Somehow that, that they caught up to him. He was supposed to be king, but somehow they caught up to him and they killed him and they ruined everything. They believed that because Jesus is not the Son of God, they did not believe that in this moment. They didn't believe that he was the Son of God. So somehow... Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the religious leaders and all those people usurped the power of Jesus, power of Son of God, the power of the Trinity. All they could see was the situation that was right before them. Circumstances they were facing at the time. The, the promises and plans of God, the teachings of Jesus that they had heard with their own ears, not anywhere to be found in their processing of what was going on. The grief from unbelief blinded them from connecting the foundational dots of salvation and left them in a kind of spiritual darkness, a, 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 a den, a, a dungeon. Or, or perhaps it's the other way around. The lack of belief and their blindness towards the person of Jesus and the purposes and plans of God throughout Scripture with which Jesus spoke of incessantly culminated in the grief and hopelessness that they were feeling in this moment. To, to think that man can usurp the authority of the king of kings leaves one in a very, very vulnerable and dangerous place. Third thing they failed to believe was the extent of the redemption that God was doing, the redemption of mankind. I, I don't want to take much time here, but as with most religious believers, the Jews in that day, they thought that the Messiah was for Israel. They said, well, we thought he was going to restore Israel, right? Verse 21. They thought that Israel was going to be saved from the Romans. The redemption looked like freedom from Roman occupation. No other kind of freedom they were looking for. They certainly would have been some of the ones, likely, if you remember, for those of you who are here, or if you've, if you've ever studied the story of Zacchaeus, or right after Zacchaeus, they're in Jericho, and these guys are saying, so, okay, he's going to Jerusalem, and these disciples are saying, so are you going to immediately start your kingdom when you enter into Jerusalem? And so Jesus shares the story of the ten minas, right, in our, in our text. You might remember that from Luke 19, I believe it was. And so he's telling the story, I'm, I'm not like those kings. I'm not like this. There is, there is no kingdom like, like 
my kingdom. My kingdom is not like Herod's kingdom. My kingdom is not like what you think and what you want and what you desire. My kingdom is so much more than that. It was clear that every one of them, the disciples in that time, were unclear as to the kind of kingdom that Jesus was bringing. That over and over again, even though Jesus had said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. My kingdom's not of this world. Things like that. It's a kingdom that knows no end. For all who believe, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. They don't, they don't believe it. They're looking to be free from Rome. And in the midst of their unbelief of what God is actually doing, and that is freeing them from sin and from death and from Satan, that Rome is just, Rome is just so small compared to those things. Disciples fail to actually take Jesus at his word, and they evidently are reeling on the dashed hopes that the false hopes they had were dashed and are blinded to the hope of redemption of both Jew and Gentile through the sacrifice of Jesus himself. So they walk away from Jerusalem with zero understanding of the kingdom of God, the the real kingdom of God. They've got the kingdom of God in their head, and it's not correct. And they're just misunderstanding. They don't believe the word of God, which is the next thing and the last piece of the things that they failed to believe. And that is they failed to believe the words of Jesus. Do, Do you fail to believe the words of Jesus? And what that means is do you fail to trust the words of Jesus? Jesus has said, I'm going to rise again in three days. I don't think so. That was not on our radar. They didn't believe Jesus. Verses 21 through 24 tell us that though they most certainly had heard Jesus say it, they had been deaf to it and were in fact blind to the power of the resurrection. Are you blind to the power of the resurrection of King Jesus? So blind that even after its occurrence that they were utterly confused by the excited report of the women who had seen the empty tomb and who had the angels declaring, He's alive! He's no longer here! These disciples are like, I don't think so. Could, can't be. And they're just dejected because they don't believe the words of Jesus. You see? Jesus was alive. His promises were being fulfilled. Eyewitness accounts and all. They, they walk off into the sunset. Dejected. Sad. Hopeless. And we shouldn't really pick on these guys. I mean, we sit and read this text and we kind of say, come on, guys, gee whiz. You just, like, you just spent three years with Jesus and you just, saw, you just saw this stuff. Did you not hear what he said? Can we not say to ourselves, oh my word. How much has Jesus told us in this book? And we're like, no, I don't think so. And we go off on our own and we're sad and we're dejected. Let 
I want to encourage you for a moment. If the very ones who sat at the feet of Jesus and they themselves walked and talked with Jesus and they saw all that they did, if they, if they can find themselves confused and lost amid their sorrows on that day when Jesus was very present with them, how much more you and I, 2,000 years later, where Jesus is not literally standing next to us, walking alongside of us, and reminding us of what he said. We've been given this story in the place of Luke to cause us to consider two disciples, two disciples who are very much like you and I, prone to forget, prone to leave the God we say we love so that we might identify with them and learn from them. So do you feel overwhelmed this morning by the sorrows of life? Are you overwhelmed by fear and sadness and doubt? Do you, do you feel alone? Do you feel misunderstood? Do you feel confused about yourself? Do you feel confused about your parents? Do you feel confused about your kids? Do you feel confused about your work? Do you feel confused about the country? Do you feel confused about the, the meaning and purpose of your existence at, at the core? Do you feel dejected? Do you feel lifeless? And if not you this morning, it, it, it will be you at some point, but, but it is those around you and it is those you come in contact with throughout the week. Consider both what these two disciples this morning failed to believe and see if any of those areas sound familiar to you in the way that you think and the way that you forget and the way that you doubt and the way that you failed to believe who Jesus is, the plans and purposes of God, His broad scope of redemption. that all his promises are yes and amen in him. Well, the overwhelming sorrows of life come from our failure to believe the word of God. Well, we don't want to stop there, but we want to consider this next observation as well. The ardent fervor of spiritual life comes from knowing the word of God. After taking time to hear all that the disciples share, all these failures of belief amid their sorrow, Jesus says this in verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And you might have heard it read at some point, or you hear it in your head, you stupid disciples. I know stupid's a bad word, sorry, uh, for some, some of the kids in here. Uh, so whatever a uh, different word is. Um, you foolish disciples. You guys are so ignorant. What is wrong with you? That, that's not the voice of Jesus. I, I, I believe that Jesus is patient and gentle and just kind of calling it what it is. Oh, you foolish ones. Why, why don't you just believe what I say? Did you feel that call this morning from Jesus? Just trust me. Just trust me. He, it's, it's the utter gentleness and care as the shepherd of those two disciples' souls just graciously stating something true about them that on account of their foolish, fickle, slow hearts, they've, they've chosen not to believe some of 
the most foundational truths of Scripture. Particularly that Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, should suffer all that they're sad about prior to entering into the glory of His kingdom, which they have so far not really believed. And so in utter patient kindness, Jesus continues to walk with them and talk with them, walking along the road with them, not being like, these guys are lost causes, I'm out of here. He's walking with them and talking with them. And he takes them to Scripture and takes them to the Old Testament. And we don't know what Old Testament passages Jesus used to begin giving them understanding, but somehow he needed to take them from their place of their faulty beliefs and reform their beliefs from the ground up from Scripture, which today is Reformation Sunday. And throughout the history of Christianity, there's just been this, there, there had been this significant slide away from God's Word, beginning to add all sorts of other things to it, and then there was a reformation that took place, and the reformation at the core was a reformation to come back to Scripture and to sit under Scripture. And so we're doing the same thing today. Matter of fact, every day is Reformation Day. Semper Reformanda. Always reforming. Now, regarding the identity of the Son of God, perhaps he went to a familiar passage out of Isaiah 9 where he says, well, for to us a child is born. Brothers, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. You hear the kingdom of God there? on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You see the plan and purposes of God in sending Jesus here? See, he's, he's taking what these guys knew from Isaiah and declared it to them and said, that's me. And perhaps when he dealt with their understanding of the sovereign will and love of the Trinitarian God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, to redeem his people through the death of the Son of God, he might have gone to Isaiah 53, where he says, it was the will of the Lord, Yahweh, to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is the will of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to bring about the redemption of all that would ever be his called to him. Perhaps when he dealt with their lack of understanding of the breadth of redemption, that his kingdom goes way beyond the borders of Israel, Jesus took them to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 or other passages, or the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 or 1 Chronicles 17 or 2 Chronicles 6 or Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, or wherever. It's all over the place. And as we study the Old Testament, to come to the conclusion that from the very beginning, Christ is promised Genesis 3:15 on. It's all over the place. And Jesus takes them time and time and time again to different passages to proclaim, this is about me. Almost certainly he would have gone to Jeremiah 31, where he speaks of a day coming. Where Jeremiah speaks of a day coming when God brings about a new covenant. A new covenant, as Jesus said in chapter 22 of Luke, this new covenant is in his blood spilled on that cross 
So as Jesus takes the disciples through the Old Testament, explaining from Moses to the prophets just how all of them are referring to him and that his death had been planned event from the very beginning, as he explains to them that he is more than a prophet, but the very Son of God, and how his death and resurrection is for all who believe from the very beginning to the very last day, and how from, from, uh, from, each day, uh, from, the, from the breath of redemption, including Gentiles, uh, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free, from every tongue and tribe, and nation, as he explains that he was God's covenant keeper for all whom God chooses, what does Jesus do in this moment but stay with them just a bit further? He was, he was acting as though he was going to continue on, but he was going to stay. He was going to stay because his job wasn't done with these two people, these two disciples. He breaks bread with them. He, in, the, in the normal everydayness of like dinner, he sits down with them and he eats with them. I don't think he had communion with them. He just like sat down with them and he, he ate with them. Just a normal everyday occurrence. And it was in that everyday activity of eating together that their eyes were opened. And all of a sudden, Jesus was known for the first time. He was truly believed, truly trusted. They had been with Jesus in their blind unbelief, but they still didn't know him, but now they see him. Now their eyes have been opened, and it does say their eyes were opened. It's a passive thing that something, somebody else did. Who? The sovereign king opened their eyes. The power of the Spirit, the Father, Son, and Spirit opened their eyes, moved in their hearts to open their eyes and see the glories of Christ. There is no other reason that Melissa Robinette gave her life to Jesus except that God chose her from the beginning of the foundation of the world and he gave her a heart and eyes to see him. And Caroline and Rebecca and Mason and Dave and Brad and Ben and Carrie and any of you who are believers. We were blind. Our hearts were dead. But the Lord brought our hearts back to life and opened our eyes to see the glories of Jesus. And the response? Well, Jesus vanished from their sight, and you'd think something else would have been written about that, like, what? But it's just this statement, and it's like, Okay. The response was, where where'd he, where, where'd he go? What, what happened? The response was, did not our hearts burn within us when he was talking to us? They knew him. All of a sudden, everything that they'd been taught, everything that, all, all these things that Jesus had said, all these things that Jesus had just said and brought to light in their life, all these things, all of a sudden, the warmth filled their bodies and they recognized him and they saw him and their lives were radically changed. So radically changed that it says earlier on in the, or, or I think it was verse 24 maybe where it says it was approaching nighttime. It was nighttime. They needed to walk back to Jerusalem and they ran back to Jerusalem so that they could tell the other disciples what the women said was true. He's alive. We saw him. We know him. 
Their hopes were no longer buried in the tomb with their dead Messiah. They were no longer looking for the living among the dead. They were no longer confused about all that Jesus had previously told them. They understood in that moment. They saw Jesus for who he truly was. Now, I've been wanting to preach um, this text for quite, quite a while now in, our, in our Luke. We have two more sermons after this one in Luke. Listen, I've had moments in my life where my heart has burned within me. Have you had moments like that? If you're born again, I know you have. I know some in this room that, that recently have had this fire burning in you. You just can't control it. You want to tell other people about it. You love Jesus with all your heart and you just want to follow him. And then there's other times where it's, it's cold. Jesus seems far away. Not listening. Oh, to have been one of those men on the road that day. Wouldn't it have been amazing to have been there on that road filled with sorrow? Wouldn't it have been amazing to be filled with all those unmet expectations and, and just overridden with sorrow and sadness and doubt and lack of clarity? Doesn't that sound awesome? That stinks. And I know some of you are there today. We don't have to wonder what that's like. It's, it's not all that amazing. But then that's not the entire story. What we also see is that even though there's blindness in these two disciples amid their sorrow, the risen King Jesus Christ himself is walking right alongside of them as he does with you and I in our darkness and our coldness, our sorrows. Rather than Jesus disappearing from them on account of their unbelief and blindness on the purposes, plans, and promises of God, he spent time with them. He, he walked alongside of them. He taught them. He discipled them. And, and doing so patiently from the Scriptures. And that time being so wonderful and real and rich in the very normal time of dinner, he opens their eyes. Where in a moment they were so sad and they could see no way out, all of a sudden eyes opened, hearts burning, love filled. This is what the Lord does. Can you imagine that? Have you been given eyes to see Jesus and to know him, to be certain of him? This is why Luke is writing this whole thing in the first place to Theophilus to say, Theophilus, you can be sure of this. Trust the word of God. Friends, you can be sure that Jesus is who he says he is and that he, is born, he, he has born you again. He, he really will come through. He will really walk with you. He really will talk with you. Matter of fact, he always is speaking. We don't have to wait for some sort of magical voice out of the air or some dream, although we're thankful for the moments where the Spirit breaks in and gives us dreams and gives us visions and that kind of thing, but pri primarily, oh, oh, this word. This word is filled with God's words to you. And every single one of them is authoritative and true and worthy to be trusted. And they all point to Jesus, your King. Three questions I want to leave you with. You can think about and process later on this afternoon or this week. Where do you find your own heart being slow to believe? And all the scripture have spoken... Where, where do you find your own heart being slow to believe? I think this sentence doesn't make sense. Does it make sense to you? I think it makes sense. Where do you find your own heart being slow to believe in the Scripture? 
having spoken of the plans and purposes of God. So when you think about the plans and purposes of God, how, how does your heart respond to that? Do you trust that? Do you believe? Are you slow to believe the plans and purposes of God? Where do you find your own heart doubting the person and work of Jesus? And then how does your failure or victory to believe or know the Word of God affect the way you respond to the circumstances of life? Those will be up at the end of the service as well, so you can write them down, and they'll also be in the sermon follow-up this afternoon for those of you who are members of this church or regular attenders. Where do you find your own heart being slow to believe? Where do you find your own heart doubting the personal work of Jesus? And how does your failure or victory to believe, know the Word of God affect the way you respond to the circumstances you're experiencing? The news of the risen Lord is soothing balm for a disciple's soul throughout the last 2,000 years. And it's, it's news that gives life to discouraged followers of Jesus. It, it takes those even who have denied Jesus three times, transforms them into faithful believers like Peter who wrote this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, those disciples have seen Him, though you have not seen Him, Oh, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. You, you know him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You feel the burning heart of a disciple there obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your heart, friends, your heart. If your heart is cold this morning towards the Lord, your heart will warm in the nearness of God by believing what the Bible tells you about Jesus. You will not find warmth elsewhere. Any warmth that lasts. You feel that the Lord is far away from you. Your heart will warm in the nearness of God by believing what the Bible tells you about Jesus. May it be so.